1: it's a little overwhelming seeing so many familiar faces all at once Um, so welcome back from summer break I feel like I want to just take 10 minutes with each one of you check in Um, which is not possible come in So um, it's September it's another semester and um, i I was thinking just as the, the sitting was ending, how um maybe the the theme that we should uh, focus on because this is a little like going back to school is um uh, being students, uh, how do we be good students? Is everybody comfortable? How do we how do we teach ourselves uh, to be teachable? So I think this practice. Uh, Teaches us how to be good students. It's really so simple. Like, um, you know, I trained in Vipassana practice. And, you know, in Vipassana practice, you know, you move around a little bit sometimes if you're uncomfortable. or you know. And Vipassana people hate Zen people. Because uh, in Zen practice, uh, it's all about the posture. And so Vipassana people are always critiquing Zen people as being, like, too uptight. Uh, But actually, uh, when you start to sit really still and you don't move, uh, you close some doors. And when you close some doors, like the escape doors, uh, other doors open that maybe you didn't expect. And if you just treat that as a really simple practice, I'm going to sit completely still for 30 minutes. And when I bow... I'm going to really bow with my whole heart. When you offer incense, I'm going to offer incense with my whole heart. When I play with my son, I'm going to play with him with everything. And if I'm trying to play with him and I'm jet-lagged, as it was today, then I play with him with my jet lag. Full combustion. Mm -hmm. So how do we learn how to do this before we get so busy? The Heart Sutra says, no coming, no going, no increase, no decrease. All dharmas are empty. If you sit still, uh, you'll see that. You'll sit still and right in the middle of sitting still, Uh, there's no stillness it's just your life and tears will come and right in the middle of the tears there's no tears and joy is like that too joy will show up when you practice right in the middle of the joy there's no joy there's not a person there going oh this is really joyous if you're sitting there when you're really sad and you're right in the middle of the sadness, there's nobody inside it going, oh, I'm so sad. That's not that's not being in the posture. And September comes, and busyness comes, and right in the middle of the busyness, there's no busyness. Do you know that feeling when you're busy and you're saying to yourself, I'm so busy. Why am I so busy? And then you're all stressed out. Or you can be busy. And you're just busy. It's no problem. So in the practice, one of the things we're learning is when you're holding on too tight to something and you can start to feel it in your body. Can everybody feel this in the posture? You're sitting there and you're just your mind is just wrapped around something, you know, can't let go. And then you see how when you can drop something, some, something else opens up. Uh, people love to philosophize about impermanence. You know, everything's changing all the time. Uh, but I, I think what's really happening As a practice in impermanence, is that we're learning how to experience loss. Not just that things change, that's conceptual. Oh, it's changing. But actually, how to feel a loss of something. So I think the popularity of this term mindfulness should be replaced with just the term mourning. Because if you start to get a sense of what mindfulness feels like, um, it's actually a practice of learning how to be with the falling away of our moment to moment experience. And there's, in the Christian tradition, this is called mercy, which I like a lot T- tender mercy. it's so natural so just when you're sitting for your attention to just harmonize for your body your body is intelligence and for it to just harmonize with what's happening and then feel the loss of what's happening it's not heavy it's quite light actually so i wanted to um uh, talk about a koan tonight. Uh, the word koan uh, means a, a public record, and um, uh, in in a judicial sense, and uh, how they were used in the past was there would be uh, moments where there would be interactions or dialogue with teachers and students, where uh, there was a breakthrough somehow, and in the breakthrough. Uh, it was recognized that something was seen, someone's life was seen from a totally different perspective. And that breakthrough would then become a story. And then uh, that story would be used by students and teachers uh, to explore where they were at in their practice. And then uh, after that, they would become, uh, they were created uh, capping verses and test questions and all kinds of things related to koan. So... A teacher would give a student uh, one of these old stories, and then ask the student to, um, to show their understanding. I, th- I think we can all have a spiritual life that's really private, like uh, especially if you're interested, kind of in mystical experience. You know, like you're in high school and you drop acid and you like uh, hug the ground all night, you know? and then that's it. Uh, So the idea in meditative practice when you work with a a teacher is that as you have experiences where you break through the hardness of your, the narrowness of your mind, you talk about it with somebody and then they might give you a question to explore. And then, because I think all religion is just like this amazing dialogue for hundreds of years, thousands of years. And so there's a, a tradition of how students bring questions to teachers and how they answer them, and then how teachers test students. And these get discussed for hundreds and hundreds of years. That's the koan tradition. Uh, But you don't have to use a koan like that. They can also be, which is how I like to use koans, is just a great story (laughs) that uh, you can uh, take into your practice and really contemplate. So anyways, this is a, a koan. It goes like this. Uh, a monk asked Chi Qimen, Minh, t- his teacher, what is the essence of wisdom? It's such a straightforward question. What is the essence of wisdom? The word in Sanskrit is pragna. What is the essence of wisdom? And Chi Minh uh, says, Oyster swallows the bright moon. Oyster swallows the bright moon. Can you picture this? So this is an illusion. You need to know the Chinese folklore behind the story. but uh, The illusion is, um, in Chinese folk mythology, the way pearls are created is that oysters swim up to the surface of the ocean in the middle of the night, on the full moon, and they open up. And they swallow the moonlight. And that's how they get that's how they grow a pearl. Isn't that nice? Can you picture that? No one's around. You know, the fishermen are sleeping. The oysters come up to the surface of the ocean in the night. Has anyone here ever been on the ocean at nighttime? In a boat? Under a full moon? It's an amazing thing. And uh, they swallow the moon. And so a pearl is that, a little moon. So um, a monk asks, what's the essence of wisdom? Oyster swallows the bright moon. Oysters have such a hard shell. Do you know this about yourself? I think it's one of the hardest things about meditating. Meditating is that we can have such good ideas about ourselves and how sophisticated we are and how how good we are with this and that. I remember that when I used to teach psychologists a lot. They had such such well-trained understanding of how the mind works, and then you'd get them in a room to sit still. And no ability to work with the mind. (laughs) To understand the mind, yes, and we all need that, it's so important. But actually, just understanding your mind can be a thin film that kind of gets in the way, actually, of really experiencing what's there. Because we're a little bit of a distance. That's also the hard shell that we make protect ourselves. And at night, it opens. I've been in, in, in B.C. for a month with my family, and uh, we were moving around a lot, and I got a little bit of insomnia. Does anybody here have insomnia ever? Yeah. I haven't had insomnia for a long time. And, uh, so I was really feeling rough. And we were staying at um, Peter Levitt's house, a uh, Zen teacher, who, who many of you know, and great poet. And um, So I went in one morning, and he said, Oh, you look a wreck. And I said, oh, I'm not sleeping. I have insomnia. And he says, oh, it's not insomnia. It's gratitude. And I said, what do you mean it's gratitude? He said, the best things happen at nighttime. (laughs) Isn't that true sometimes? Does anybody have this experience where you wake up in the morning and you've had a dream and you don't really remember exactly what the dream is, but it shifted something? So he kept saying this to me every day. All the best things happen at night. All the best things happen in the darkness. Can you picture the oyster opening? That hard exterior of separateness. Or another way to think about it is when we're like an oyster... And we're underground, and we're not uh, letting anything new in. And that's what I meant about being a good student. Being a good student isn't like obeying, like, oh, yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. I spent some time this summer uh, talking with a friend who runs Pima Children's organization. And he said, do you know why she's so successful? <laughs> and my first thought was, you know... She just has such a nice face. (laughs) And he said the reason why she's so successful is because she positions herself as a student, not as a spiritual teacher. And any of you who read her books, you know this. She doesn't come off like, I'm going to teach you the way. She comes across as a mess, like you. And me. I have this theory that there's two kinds of teachers. There's teachers who are masterful, and when you study with them, you feel like, if I study with them, I will be like that. I'll be masterful. And then there's teachers who are a mess. And you have this feeling when you're with them, oh, they're a mess. (laughs) (laughs) So I can be a mess. (laughs) Don't ask me where I am on that. When you sit still, you can also go into that place where it's it's timeless. It's not so human, really. It's not shiny. When I was in Japan, you know, one of the things I've always really disliked about Japanese aesthetics is lacquerware. (laughs) Do you know what I'm talking about? I always really because I I, I didn't like how how shiny everything is. Like if if you ever uh, uh, get good Japanese lacquerware, it's so glossy. And then um, doing orioki practice, eating practice uh, at a monastery, traditional monastery in Japan, and then lunch comes out in all the lacquerware. Um, But uh, the rooms in monasteries are so dark and in a Japanese traditional house the, it's very dark I mean now it's changed with electricity and everything and so the the reason why lacquerware is designed to be so shiny is because it does magical things in the dark like you pick up the bowl in the dark and it's not glossy just the right amount of light hits it and like priest's robes you know nowadays there's electricity and they're so gold and they're gaudy to look at. But if you can picture what gold does. Does anybody here have a gold sequin something? Ian? Yeah. And when you're in a really dark room, gold is amazing. think of all the old gold Buddhas you know, they'd be wood with the, all the gold leaf on them, right? And now when you put them under a bright light, it's a bit cheesy. But when you see them, like when you go to Thailand now and you see all the bright, you know, it's so much. But when you picture them before electricity in the dark, the, the nuance of the gold in the dark. So that's what I mean that when, when you really commit to looking at your life and you start shutting the doors of all your escape routes, other things start opening up, <coughs> like the beauty of the lacquerware, the beauty of your frustrations. This koan goes on. Uh, the monk asks Minh, what is the essence of wisdom? Oh, I should say something about Chi-men. Um, I don't remember the whole story, but something like when, when he was young and he was studying, he had a really deep experience asking a question to a teacher about what's before language. Something like that. What's before language? So the teacher turned the question back to him. Like, what's, what's before words? And just as Chi was about to answer, the teacher picked up his stick and hit him in the mouth. <laughs> with my teacher, when you when you have interviews with her, she keeps a big stick between you. And you know at any time she's going to pick that up and hit you. <laughs> but he got hit right in the mouth. And then he, he realized something. Because it's ridiculous. The teacher says, what's before words? And the teacher doesn't want a conceptual answer. And he was just starting to open his mouth. So what did the teacher do? He hit him in the mouth. And then he saw what was right before words. How much time do you sit there in your meditation practice and just talk to yourself? So the, the koan goes on. Then Qi said to him, Oysters, Oyster swallows the bright moon. And then the monk asked, Then what is the function? So the first question is, what is the essence of wisdom? What is the function of wisdom? And Qi said, A rabbit getting pregnant. So this also is a Chinese story. This is how rabbits got pregnant. They would run around in the moonlight. Can you picture this? And they would get pregnant. So uh, the functioning of wisdom is um, to swell up, to be filled with something. And that forces you to act. You can't be pregnant without the acting. Acting sick or whatever. But the, the word prajna is very interesting. This word wisdom, it's very interesting. It, it prajna, um, has two terms. A pra, the prefix means to come before, before, and gna, which is where you get through Latin the word gnosis, or which is where you eventually get the word knowledge, right? Um, so so pragna which is what we translate as wisdom, actually etymologically is uh, the, the knowing before knowing. Like there's the knowing, which is someone asks you a question, you open your mouth. But that's not dharma. Dharma is the knowing before knowing, before you open your mouth. And to really... Uh, live from that place, you have to trust yourself. Now, all that is the warm-up koan. The real koan is, how are you going to practice being a student in your life? And then, how are you going to express it? So your practice is not private. It's so important. Just to have uh, time every day to have a simple experience of your body, a simple experience of your mind. Simplicity. I know most of you here, and you're so smart. And so much of the time, that intelligence is just going around in circles. Especially if you have insomnia, a lot of rumination. And then also to do this in your daily life externally, which is to live simply, not so complicated. We all know that the best food is just simple, simple food. The best conversations with people are really straightforward. There can be so much nuance the more simple you get. And the heart of this practice is really to put an end to consumerism. The need to consume so much. I don't know how many of you are watching what's happening in Fukushima, but things are getting worse every week. When I was there and I interviewed scientists and um, academics... Everyone said the same thing, you know. All the technology that we can invent to replace nuclear power, whether it's solar or wind, none of it will work unless we consume less energy. We have to consume less. But the thing is, is that our communities have been uh, are atrophying, atrophying, atrophying. I like atrophying. And so the way people feel connected is by shopping, not through each other. So that when activists tell people you need to shop less, people can't hear it because it's an assault on their identity because our identity is built up from the uniqueness of the things we buy and the relief of spending our money and buying things. And when that's at the core of your behavior in your life, this collection of things, then we're at war with our deeper selves and our deeper collective imagination. It's the end of history, When, which is when you only have one idea. Debt, privatization, the falling apart of community. And the answer is in all of our behavior. Internally, to have the ability to find a more simple way of relating to what motivates us so we're not running away unconsciously and externally in how we live our life is just to live simply not so much stuff do you know what i'm talking about <laughs> this is a practice of renunciation but it's renunciation in two directions is the internal renunciation which is like when you say, that is not good for me anymore. An external renunciation, which is, that is not good for me anymore, even though I really like those shoes. And maybe we have to do this with people also. So, I'll give you a practice to work on. Which is uh, to take the posture of an oyster right at the surface of the ocean. Can you picture this? Can you feel it in your body? So, oysters come to the surface of the ocean. Moon is full. So, when you sit, take the posture of the oyster you have a shell we all have a shell it's naive to think that you don't need a shell you need a shell there are crazy people out there (laughs) Stephen Harper (laughs) is out there (laughs) and also you have some grit you have some grit If you don't see that you have some grit, you're a time bomb. A little too pure. And then you take the posture of the oyster. Allowing something in that's not human. We're so in our human lives. But also, uh, when you get still you can feel what's not human. Trees. Sidewalks. So I think it takes a lot of courage to sustain the posture of an oyster. A little imagination, too. Um, I want to end tonight with a poem, but the poem has nothing to do with anything I talked about. Before I read the poem, uh, I want to read from uh, the obituary of the author of this poem. Some of you might know that Seamus Heaney died last week. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, when I was young, uh, after Allen Ginsberg, Seamus Heaney was uh, my hero. Um, uh, another poet named Tom Slay wrote wrote an obituary and. There's just this one kind of section here that I really loved. He said, um, he's talking about visiting Seamus Heaney in his little uh, cottage in Ireland. He said, uh, Seamus and I drove out to his cottage in Glenmore. We established a routine. He would go upstairs in his study, work away at translating, a translation that began one of his most beautiful books at the time, Seeing Things, about the death of his father. And I would be downstairs trying to scribble what I could, but aware of Seamus upstairs muttering to himself a little as he composed. The cottage was very basic and very old, a slate roof, clinking latch, and it projected its own Newman. It was, as Seamus said, of the sausages, a cottage of the mind. Through it all, I felt a kind of wonder that such a house could exist, that I was sleeping in it, and that Seamus was immensely gracious throughout in allowing my presence. And even though you had to wear your coat all day to keep from shivering, I loved how the stony up-againstness of the place seemed to stay. Well, look, you may not be exactly comfortable, but go ahead anyways. Make yourself at home. Um... When you were a kid, did you ever turn a bicycle upside down and turn the wheels around? Uh, and like, it's really a profound thing. Uh, here's his poem about that. The first grip I ever got on things was when I learned the art of pedaling by hand, a bike turned upside down and drove its back wheel preternaturally fast. I love the disappearance of the spokes the way the space between the hub and the rim hummed with transparency. If you threw a potato into it, the hooped air spun mush and drizzle back into your face. Mm -hmm. If you touched it with a straw, the straw frittered. Something about the way those pedal treads worked very palpably at first against you and then began to sweep your hand ahead into a new momentum. All that entered me like an access of free power, as if belief caught up and spun the objects of belief in an orbit coterminous with longing. So, there you go. Thank you, Um So I'll stop here, and maybe we can just talk for a few minutes before we finish.